Hello, my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the important uh, Spooky Club. Oh. Cinema's supposed to be in there somewhere. I got all screwed up, though. Because it's the Shocktober, uh, second Shocktober episode. <laughs> what spooky sound effect did I think of? I want to suck your blood. I got some, I got some spooky sound effects for this week. <laughs> crinkle, crinkle, crinkle. <laughs> okay. No, that is... Um... That's the sound of the wind. Friends, there is nothing scarier than, than nothing. Than nothing. <laughs> That's right. The, the biggest, the most scary thing... I've always said ever since I was a small boy, my own shadow. <laughs> I don't know. I think that the scariest thing to me would be like a monster running towards me. Probably uh, the scariest thing would be like a big van coming up <laughs> and somebody grabbing you and putting you in the yeah, van. That's true. That terror. scares me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But no, what's really the scariest thing is the shadows. Yeah, and that's the right. Because we're talking about Val Luton, the producer, not the director of such films as Cat people, I walked with a zombie. The leopard man, the seventh guest, the body snatcher. The ghost ship. Isle of the Dead. Yeah, Isle of the Dead, that's one of his. And he's a producer who defined that kind of elevated, it's scarier if you don't know what's coming at you movies. Elevated horror. Elevated horror. Let's take you back to 1942 in Hollywood. Whoa! Because there's nothing scarier than financial failure. (laughs) That's right. And RKO was going through it. Because thanks to that irresponsible Orson Orson Welles. Speaking of Shocktober. Well, don't worry. They got Orson Welles off the set. And they had a a new motto in 1942. Showmanship instead of genius. (laughs) That's great. And you know who the showmanship was? It was this tiny new horror department that they had created, led by a man who was once an assistant to David O. Selznick, a man born in 1904 in Yalta, Russia, which is now the Ukraine, wrote pulp novels in the 30s before finding his way to Hollywood and being an assistant on such projects as Gone with the Wind. It's an apocryphal story that he's the one behind that big, long tracking shot that goes up and shows all the bodies of the soldiers. His idea, at least. Yes. In fact, he was the one, I found this out in the Kent Jones documentary he was the one who went and with a stopwatch to determine when the intermission should be which i have trouble believing because it was obviously the part where she says i'll never be hungry again (laughs) yes i mean val luton is a guy that supposedly got the rko job because he was at a party and somebody asked hey who is that he's like uh he writes horrible novels and the person heard horror novels and he's like i should hire him to uh, run my the rko horror department right so being a producer i i don't sense was Val Luton's great dream. He Mm. wanted to be a writer. Perhaps he wanted to be a director, but instead he devoted himself to this. And he became kind of, I think, the ultimate producer as auteur. Yeah, I mean, everybody says that he's the guy that essentially built the movie from the ground up, probably in conjunction with the director, but like they planned it, they storyboarded it. He worked on every facet before it went to camera. And aside from maybe... David O. Selznick, and maybe Roger Corman, who's obviously also a director. I can't think of another producer who is spoken of in the same auteurist terms that Val Luton is, even though Val Luton employed directors who were significant 
stylists in their own right. Jacques, Jacques Tourneur. Most famously. Uh, saying it as Frenchy as I can. Jacques Tourneur. No. But also... Your French accent always sounds like Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> <laughs> but also Robert Wise, who yeah. we found in the RKO editor's department. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robson. With Mar- Mark Robson. Mark Robson. Who was also an editor uh, at RKO as well. I believe they had both worked on Citizen Kane. Right. People who went on to good careers. And in fact, Jacques Tourneur, <laughs> after uh, directing those first three Val Luton horror movies, was called up to the big leagues. Yeah, made... much to um, Val Luton's uh, disgust or disappointment. Uh, what has been your feeling towards Val Luton over the years? Have you ever been a big fan? Because I know that you you were raised on the Evil Dead. Yes. You know, you like splattery stuff. You like uh, stuff where the camera moves really fast. <laughs> yeah, and, that's right. Shenanigans. <laughs> you and know, stuff. just a uh, base kind of excitement just shove it in my eyes because you know our podcast is called the important cinema club and we're here to talk about um important movies uh, <laughs> elevated horror what, what, what am i saying what am i saying yep. uh but were have you ever are you now or have you ever been a val luton fan yeah of course i am yeah nice short movies 60 minutes what's mm. not to like yeah a lot of them like uh the leopard man big sprawling stories with a whole bunch of characters great shock set pieces blood under the door that's val luton stock and trade the Valutin movies they they're ones that I think I have come to over the years mm-hmm. I've seen a number of them over the years and when I was younger I was maybe a little underwhelmed but with, I mean it's but, called the cat people and the poster has like a cat person on it yeah but, no and, cat people in it and you sort of be sold on these movies on the idea that okay the horror is what's absent the horrors in the shadows yeah and when you're an immature kid you're you think, like Give me a monster. Yeah, give me like a guy in like a shitty leopard suit jumping out toward the camera. And in fact, I say an immature kid. I'm still like that a little (laughs) bit. Yeah, you're right. If I gave you the choice of like, I can give you a movie with like cat people in it or the the version where they're absent and you haven't seen either and you have to make a choice. <laughs> yeah. It feels like a little bit like having your medicine to have the Val, the Val Luton version. But I think that people, when they saw it, it allowed horror, who, which at that point was defined by the Universal Monster movies, take on a different aspect. Yeah. So it was sort of proto-noir. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, it, there are horror movies where you project so much onto them. And as I was revisiting them this week, I realized how certain ones of them had really kind of taken up residence in my memory in the years since I'd seen them. So I remember the first time I saw I Walked with a Zombie mm-hmm. and I, I didn't I didn't quite get it. Yeah, you're like, where are the zombies? Yeah, and I, and I was like, wait, that that's it at the end? Yeah, and I, I remember seeing the same thing. And I knew... At, Don't you know Jane Eyre? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I even at that impressionable age knew that, okay, there's something wrong with me. Yeah. There's something I'm not getting. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with you. It's just that you couldn't grasp what the movie was trying to give. I mean, we should point out that all these movies have such sensational titles because they were they, they were, were given yeah, by RKO. Yeah. So like Val Luton would have never called the movie I Walked with a Zombie, but that was the title they gave him, which is why in the introduction uh, voiceover, the person's like, I Walked with a Zombie. Sounds silly, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just to be like, oh yeah, we know how silly this is. But I Walked with a Zombie, which I think is my favorite of the Val Luton movies. Jacques Tourneur said that that was the favorite film he had ever made. I've said this before that some of my favorite horror movies are the ones that become like a place. They become more than just a movie. They become there's something in the mood. There's something in the images where you just want to return to it over and over again. And and you want to you want to 
not just watch I Walked With a Zombie again, but you want to spend more time on that strange plantation in the tropics. <laughs> yeah, you know? you where wanna, you can be the white guy in charge. Yeah, yeah exactly. You want to you wanna walk through the sugarcane fields yeah. with, with the leading lady. On the set you wanna, <laughs> when they're shooting. You want to hear that the, the wind and you want to he- feel the rustle and... You want to accept death, because that's what the movie's about. And actually, it's good that you say that it's a sat, because this was another thing that threw me off about this movie specifically the first time I saw it. Really? When you were a kid, you're like, ah, it looks fake. Well, yeah, when I was in my late teens or so, there was the fact that it does look fake, the fact that whatever the atmosphere of it was Mm. wasn't quite being communicated to me. But now I see it and I realize that's the best. Exactly. Because it's dreamy. Yeah. Because it combines elements of reality and artificiality. Mm hmm. The wind sounds real. The other sounds sound real. There's something... The the fact that it looks sort of like they're in the open air, like the air is coming up against them. And when you watch the movie just going in, knowing the title, maybe knowing, I think, the kind of contours of it, you're not sure what it's going to deliver to you. Like, you're expecting, like... Where's the threat? Where is the the big shock set mm-hmm. piece? Because like other Val Luton films have them. The Leopard Man does. It has a number of them. Mm-hmm. So does Cat People. The Leopard Man is very much structured around like four set pieces. Yeah, you know? but I Walk With a Zombie does not have those things. Mm-hmm. It does not have those threat. The real kind of horror is this idea of a woman who is, for all intents and purposes, dead, but she can still walk around. And there's that illusion of, or even nightmarish idea of her still being alive. It's a love triangle, or maybe a love quadrangle, mm. a love square. Yeah, a love square. Uh, with this young woman who is a nurse in Ottawa, believe it or not, Ottawa. <laughs> Ontario. Uh, who is called to this a strange tropical plantation by this wealthy family, specifically this this man who is, I guess, the patriarch of the family, whose wife has fallen into this very strange coma. Yeah, where, trance almost. Yeah, where at night she walks around. She is sort of a zombie-like figure. Mm-hmm. And this nurse has come to try, hopefully you know, not just take care of the wife, but maybe find some sort of solution for her. Yeah, and also, fuck the husband. <laughs> right, fuck the husband, but also possibly fuck the husband's brother. That's right, yeah. I mean, th- this is the only thing that I'm like, ugh, but I understand it's the literary tropes, that Jane Eyre thing, right? It's like the rich kind of mysterious man who has like a wife locked up in the attic. And often people always say that one of the least interesting things about the Val Luton movies are the leading actors, Yeah, right? Like the supporting actor are full of interesting weird people but you know the two or three romantic leads are typically a little bit a little bit glassy and mm-hmm. and uninteresting because there are people who things happen to yeah they're not usually that active in what's going on because all these movies have this like fatalistic air to them same thing with uh the seventh victim mm-hmm. which like the movie at the end of the day is about a woman accepting death like death is unavoidable mm-hmm. and it's going to happen to these people eventually mm-hmm. i mean val luton who died fairly young a lot of people said that this kind of like tortured him this idea of dying and what that means and he kind of articulated that through these movies apparently he had trouble sleeping in real life yeah he uh, had really bad insomnia he had a heart attack before he passed away as mm-hmm. well which kind of put like the fear of death in him mm-hmm. another thing that spoke much more strongly to me about I Walked With a Zombie this time around is the whole colonial uh, aspect of it. The fact that this family, we're told very early on by one of the black characters in the film that this family brought slavery to the West Indies. The, The plantation that they're living on it's a, it's an uncanny space that they're in. It feels kind of barren. It feels like it feels bereft of life. 
um, rotten because they've been there for so long and they're, they're holding on to it, but there's not anything there for them because that's not their place. And geographically, it definitely feels like this compound that's surrounded by so much that's either mysterious or unknown or dangerous. But or I also think there's also life there. Like you see the life of the slaves that are living on their compound and they're not portrayed in like mommyish roles. They have their own culture and identity that's separate from the white people that live there. Well, that scene where she's being led through the sugarcane fields it's like she's being led from this very sort of dead space this compound where the white people are and and then she's being led and you hear the drumming in the distance the distant sound of the drumming is one of the famous things of this movie she's being led to it almost like she's being like led into this alternate reality and the dreamy way that the field looks Mm -hmm. it's like you're being you're being drifted off into dreamland you know and there's just no big shocks in the movie because at the end of the day the one big decision that's made is like oh let this zombie person just die and just go away yeah (laughs) and that is the true horror at the end of the movie or depending or relief depending on how you look at it, it's like you have to let go of these people because eventually they die and they go away. Acceptance of death. When I was on Letterboxd, I saw somebody point out, um, you know, it's I, I could be quoting Manny Farber about Val Luton, but <laughs> yeah. instead I'm quoting a Letterboxd random. <laughs> That's right. But, uh, but I saw... Uh, Val, uh, I actually read Manny Farber's Val Luton kind of eulogy. It was only like a page and a half. Yeah, yeah. Their, their two-word Letterboxd review was tropical malady. <laughs> okay. Which, which, but I actually do <laughs> think... Um, follow <laughs> <laughs> okay but i actually i get it i understand what you mean but but like putting this movie tropical in, malady has a monster in it thank you very much you're, you're absolutely right <laughs> yeah uh well this one has some scary looking people in it. yeah yeah but but mm. but don't you think <laughs> a little bit racist <laughs> don't you think putting this this movie in conversation with a pitch it pong where is that cool is I, I think it's a it's a smart thing to do beca- yeah because they're two film these are two filmmakers where they require you to sort of project a lot onto it or they require you to be participating in what's unfolding and i think that also tropical malady is also the idea of death and moving on because characters in that movie are dead yeah. but won't let go and are still kind of hanging around yeah it's like you know i walked with the zombie the past is always present mm-hmm. you know and cat people is val luton's probably his most famous film his first one and it was a massive hit and looking at how it was sold they sold it like the goriest like shocking movie you will ever see and that got people into the door it's amazing because it was a big hit and it was apparently a crowd pleaser although you do wonder like were people <laughs> were people okay with what they saw like <laughs> yeah. like g- given the fact that so little happens was there it? like a uh, man style like guy in a cat suit that like ran <laughs> through to the audience at the I guess the movie has just enough spooks and shivers in it. Yeah, it has a really good jump scare that the Simpsons ripped off beautifully in the Alien episode with the uh, bus pulling up. Cat People, I think, is still the best known Val Luton movie. Undoubtedly. And the plot is you've got this mysterious... Uh, she's not that mysterious. She's a, she's Serbian. I yeah. guess that means that that's mysterious enough. Uh, and she is married to this uh, dashing young man, but she feels that she has uh, every time she orgasms, she turns to a cat person. Uh, I know. Don't you hate when that happens? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that that's the I guess the core idea of the movie. Maybe do you think people were picking up on that when they were seeing it in theaters? Or? Probably not. Honestly. No, you don't think so. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah, those dum dums back in the fifties. But obviously, if you're calling somebody a cat person, there's something weirdly sexual about that. Yeah, that's right. That undercurrent of like lesbianism in the movie as well. So this woman is sent to a psychiatrist, the worst psychiatrist I've ever seen in a movie. <laughs> he's, he's so awful. I mean, patient doctor confidentiality does not exist in this universe. Um, he, but she's sent to him and has this, what'd you call it? Voodoo. She had this, this curse. ancient, this ancient curse. Yeah. 
in which the spirit of cats inhabits her. And there is some suggestion that maybe she is turning into a cat and killing people, but also maybe not. Meanwhile, her husband starts taking up with this very sexy other woman, Mm -hmm. which, of course, leads to the most famous scene in the film. The scene that I think is maybe the quintessential Val Luton scene, the pool scene. Yeah, that's right. Spooky pool. What is there to say about the scene? The woman is in the pool in the basement of this hotel. The lights are out, but some light is being refracted off of the water in the pool, and it's making strange patterns on the wall. You hear the sound of dripping water. You hear the sound, just echoey pool sounds. And you also hear the sound of growling. And you hear the sounds of her splashing. And the camera, you know, it cuts around the room. And out of that, terror is evoked. But in fact, she does not die. No, she does not Because the is all in your mind. Well, when somebody dies, that deflates the fear because you don't have anything to worry about anymore. Mm-hmm. Because, oh, okay, the climactic thing has happened. Mm-hmm. Now we can move on. I mean, his movies are loaded with scenes of people walking on the street, draped in shadow. They hear something and then they walk a little faster and they walk a little faster. And then eventually they make it onto the bus or they don't make it onto the bus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it should be noted that all these films are shot by Nicholas Musurai who does bring that film noir look. He also shot Tourneur's Out of the Past. Mm -hmm. So it's all like shafts of light and kind of selected lighting that, again, gives that idea of unreality to everything that you're looking. That these small, compact films that don't give the goods in the way that usually associate climaxes with horror pictures are giving to you it in different ways. The idea of mood. And, you know, it's easy to say this is elevated horror, but it is stylized to the point that it is otherworldly, and I think that's what makes an impact. I do f- find that these movies require a different kind of concentration. They require you to be sort of, you can't be a passive viewer to them. You have to sort of immerse yourself in their world. You have to be imagining what this space has meant throughout history. Like, it's not going <laughs> to spoon feed you, you yeah. know? <laughs> You're not going to get an opening title card that gives you all the details. Well, I mean, like, The Leopard Man was made... Oh, I was released the same year as I Walked as a Zombie and The Seventh Victim. But The Leopard Man almost feels like a reaction to those movies where Val Luton is going, all right, we didn't have a cat person, but there's an actual leopard in this film. Mm. So, and people will actually die. Mm. But I'm going to try to do it in a way that you still don't see anything. So it's the horror and the sound of what you're seeing that's disturbing. Well, there's that great scene very early on where, you know, the it's in this set in this Mexican village and this woman is being sort of chased by the leopard man and then or the leopard itself the leopard itself yeah and you don't see you don't see her die but you see the pool of blood yeah coming through all the you bottom. hear is her screaming and he, uh, uh knocking against the door and the indifference that her mother shows being like all right i'm coming i'm coming until it's already too late and then later on there's the scene in the cemetery where the woman is locked in the cemetery yeah and, and there's someone that can help her but he's like i'm gonna come back yeah. and it's like ah which, which is a real nightmare situation, yeah. that one. I mean, we love to go and play in cemeteries. So. And after that, you could sense that Val Luton in the films that he was producing was kind of losing interest in just doing the horror stuff. Well, I do think that like, the, the perfection of those ones with Jacques Turner... Like, it's hard to recapture that, although plenty of good ones came after this. I mean, there's The Seventh Victim, the one about witches. Not one of my favorites. It's okay. Yeah. A good mystery. Uh, the Curse of the Cat People is one I really like, and it is not a horror film. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a kind of picturesque story of a child and how her imagination deals with 
kind of the difficulties in her own life. And you do get characters from the cat people, including um, the woman who would turn to a cat person. But it's just like a figment of the girl's imagination. Mm. And it was one of the early films directed by Robert Wise, the mm. uh, editor on a bunch of Orson Welles films, would go on to do The Haunting, another Luton-esque film where you don't see anything. And you do The Sound of Music. Also, yeah, that's also right, The nice, Sound of Music. Nice compact little thriller. <laughs> You know, all these directors, after a while, they... I think even... Didn't Tourneur direct some big, like, war epics near the end of them bloated, like, yeah, insanity? Because sure. you got to pay those bills and nobody else will hire you. Uh, later on, of course, Luton would attract some actual horror stars with Boris Karloff in Isle of the Dead, which is a very fun movie. Yeah, uh, also, also The, the Body, Body Snatcher. Snatcher and Bedlam, which I watched, which is, again, not really a horror film, almost a drama about the um, mental institutions of yesteryears and how bad they were. Mm. But you do get those like touches of horror stuff in it mm-hmm. but you can tell that it just didn't interest him and if he had successes like he did with Tourneur Tourneur went on to go do bigger and better things and supposedly the studio said oh we'd like to move you on to other things as well uh, Luton but you have to ditch your crew like Mark Robson and people like that and supposedly uh, Val was very loyal to his uh, people and that one of the reasons he worked with uh, Mark Robson so much is they said okay no don't give me the big budget I'll continue to make these horror films and I'll continue fighting with the producers about what those horror films actually deliver mm. till it kind of ran out of steam and his last few pictures my own true love please believe me and apache drums were considered failures they were taken away from him recut when you're working in a in a world where like your film's only an hour long and they're essentially considered b pictures there's a lot less involvement but when those become successes and then you have to deliver like bigger films and you can't make the movie that you want to make. He died prematurely in 1951. There are, in fact, no home movies of him, and there is no... There's no recordings of his voice. Yeah, which is incredible. But there are films that continued outside of him that just continued his aesthetic. Like, the aforementioned Haunting, uh, Curse of the Demon, the uh, Tourneur film, is mm-hmm. could be assumed as a Val Luton-produced picture, because it might as well be. And that's another film where... The producers were like, oh, no, this needs a monster. So they, like, edited in a monster into the film. It was like, oh. Right, and, and that's what's on the Blu-ray box now. So funny. Yeah, yeah. It's on the poster. Yeah, yeah. And that monster, while it does appear, it doesn't connect to much because it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. So um, watching these movies, did you get a more of an appreciation of his films oh, or visiting them? Cer- certainly, absolutely. And, like, I've always, I've always liked him. I've always mm-hmm. wanted to like him. And I sort of feel like these movies will only continue to ferment for me. And these movies are available on uh, the Criterion channel right now, which makes me think, are they going to put out a box set? There was a good DVD set that came out a while back. In fact, I think Shout Factory is putting a lot of them on Blu-ray Oh, right that's now. right, because they did a remaster of... They, they just put out The Leopard Man. Yeah, and I heard that that and The Body Snatcher were like really difficult restoration jobs that they spent a lot of money on and that the Blu-rays have just not been moving. So, oh. uh, yeah, they don't know if they're going to do any more. I mean, they haven't done the cap... People, wait, did the Cat People come out recently? I don't uh, remember. Criterion put out Cat People. Oh, yes. Yeah, so there you go. So, well, I bought both of those uh, Shout Factory Blu-rays. So, so they I'm, got your dollars. I am, I am exempt from the shame. Would you buy a Walk as a Zombie when it comes out? Yeah, absolutely. All right. So you heard it here, Scream Factory. Put it, I'm sure they listened to this Put podcast. it out. Okay. So this week on our Patreon, what are we talking about, Will? Well, we are doing a listener's choice selection, and we decided to reward the gentleman who created the Important Cinema Club wiki. Yep, that's right. There's an Important Cinema Club wiki now. And I don't remember the exact address. Just search Important Cinema Club wiki. I'm sure it'll come up. Uh, he asked us to talk about... Halloween comfort food movies, and also one of his Halloween comfort food movies, Adam Wingard's The Guest. So that's what we talk about 
on the podcast. You can check it out for $5 a month at uh, patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. And uh, for people that are Patreon subscribers or are thinking about it, we also have a Discord. So it's like a chat room that you can join. There's a bunch of Important Cinema Club listeners love to chat it out about whatever movie-related thing are on their mind. Wouldn't it be great to finally have a friend? <laughs> yeah, so you can get one on the Discord channel. And as per usual, you can send us letters on Important Cinema Club podcast at gmail.com. And uh, our first letter is from a fan regarding the golden age of cinema. Not the one you think. Hi, Will and Justin. It goes without saying that I am a fan of the show and I have subscribed to your Patreon since, well, I have no clue. Ooh, that's the best Patreon subscriber. The one who has amnesia about when he learned about it. <laughs> I want to say uh, around shortly after having started listening to the main show, I migrated on over from Michael and us and my interest was peaked. <laughs> Do you, do you not listen to Michael and us anymore? Oh, who, me? No, the, list, oh, this the listener. listener yeah. yeah, no, he definitely does. Okay, good. And my interest was piqued when I heard y'all had an episode on the original Black Klansman. <laughs> yeah, I forgot we did the that. The Ted V. Michaels film, yeah. <laughs> I mean, how many places offer opinions and insights into films such as that? Not that many. <laughs> anyway, I love <laughs> And, the you know, maybe there's a reason for that. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I love the show, and as mentioned, I'm a Patreon supporter. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. A while ago on your Discord server, I asked you if you two would ever consider doing an episode on Mexican cinema. I got a reply from Justin saying perhaps toward the end of the year. Now I hold you to it. Oh, shit. Kidding aside, should you all ever do an episode on the topic? I can't help but wait to hear what you two know and think about the golden age of Mexican cinema. I can let you know right now. Nothing. How about you, Will? Yeah, similar. I'm sorry. I, uh, I would love to know more. I'm sure an episode on Mexican cinema will be broad and that perhaps the way both of you will cover the topic is by selecting a few famous or landmark movies such as The Exterminating Angel or E2 Mama Tambien. But Mexico's history of cinema is vast and before Hollywood seeped into the cultural domination, Mexico has its own productive industry. Rather than waiting for an episode on the topic, what do you know about the stars and filmmakers of Mexican cinema's golden age? Juan from Texas. Well, we already entered that well, I love the exterminating angel. Yes, yeah, it's a great is film. That, I mean, because Louis Bunuel, yeah, you know, is he it, technically a Mexican filmmaker? But let's not take that from them. No, yeah, know? that's true. Yeah, I mean, let's think of all the Canadian films we wouldn't have that are made by like American directors who came to Canada to make. Yeah, them. Uh, so many, even Black Christmas. Exactly. Um, sorry, I, I need to get back on this one because it's uh, Mexican cinema is a shameful blind spot for me. So I just randomly, before this letter came in, picked up a book at the library on the Indian Maria. Have you ever? Heard heard about this character no she's almost like a jerry lewis like figure in mexico she like produced and starred and directed in her own films there's like spooky films where she like gorilla in involved things and other stuff like that sounds good yeah i think that is definitely the problem is like looking at like letterbox like almost nothing of hers is reviewed and the ones that do review it are not very fond of her but the fact that there's a book written on her and the fact that like there is a figure like that in mexican cinema i think that would be an interesting way to approach it i've also pitched um santo uh, oh movies. yeah well i'd love to do santo yeah, yeah. how about, how about that uh, a good shocktober one because that's maybe next year <laughs> yeah let's maybe. put it on the calendar that's and right. uh, what about uh, what about Cantinflas. You remember that guy Cantinflas? He's the uh, Mexican Charlie Chaplin. He's the, uh, uh, he was in the Around the World in 80 Days, the David Niven one. Oh, I've never heard of him or seen any of his movies. Cantinflas, I think is what his name is. Uh, If the letter writer has any insight on Cantinflas, I would like to know. Last October, I went through a Mexican horror faith because they have a lot of like, even the wind is afraid, Mm -hmm. um, the brainiac that may be on a relief of a certain movie came up from Golden Ninja Video. (laughs) I don't want to spoil anything. And other stuff like the Dark Pit of Dr. M or the Black Pit of Dr. 
Dr. M. There's like a lot, there's like a Mexican horror kind of wave and they feel different than any other movie. And so like, there's a lot to kind of discover there. Oh, and like Mexico has all of its own like mythology and stories. There was a DVD label a few years ago that started putting them out in like special editions mm -hmm. and they've been gone out of print, but that just goes to show that they are available that if you're looking for them to check it out. So I recommend doing it this um, Halloween season. And we will definitely, you know what, I promise an, a Mexican related figure before the end of the year. Okay, let's we gotta do it. Do it. We've do never it. done it, and that's been one of my lists that I'm like, other than um, Louis Bunuel, which is again, yeah, bit we don't want to take it away from them, yeah. but it is a bit of a cheat. So thanks for sending that letter. All right, so what are we doing next week, Will? Uh, next week, we will be looking at the wild world of Asian horror with a director who's name I actually don't know, but I do know his work. Yes. What are some of his work as I look up the exact pronunciation of his? The Boxer's Omen, mm, Killer, Killer Snakes, Snakes, Hex, Killer Constable, Ghost Eyes. He just made so... He was known as like the gross-out guy at the Shaw Brothers studio. And just like we have difficulty um, saying his exact name, he's not a filmmaker that people I think think of as like a figure like a Fulci or even a Bava that like oh yeah I really like that person's films and I think that it may have something to do with the availability of his films mm -hmm. and that for a long time they were very difficult to see and also the fact that the Shaw Brothers studio is sort of thought of as its own auteur yes you know? that's right and they're also known as martial arts films people don't usually talk about Shaw Brothers films that don't fall within that kind of um, genre template his name is Kuei Ching Hung and I know I'm saying that incorrectly uh, please excuse me he has a kind of an amazing filmography is that he was also the international guy for the Shaw Brothers who so did like a lot of co-productions mm. he did a movie that was known as The Bod Squad and also Virgin of the Seven Seas sounds good which was a um, German sex comedy meets kung fu uh, I guess mix them up so I'm excited to rewatch A Boxer's Omen will I like it this time because I've kind of disliked it every time that I've seen it who knows I love it I too slow for me that's the issue too slow for you yeah that there's a lot of crazy stuff, but it's parsed out at a very glacial pace. Holy shit. Yeah, I just, so... I just don't know. <laughs> yeah, we're, I mean, I know. I've watched it. I have a whole group of people. We all watch it together, and we were like, eh, this is slow, so... Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, well... You know what? I am more elevated than I am before then, and so I look forward to that one and Bewitched and probably Killer Snakes. Oh, he also did a Giallo, Corpse Mania. So I will definitely be checking that one out Killer as well. Snakes has been on my list for a long time. A lot of snake violence. So uh, if you don't like animals being hurt on screen, do not watch it because I remember seeing it and be like, oh my God, the ending of it. <laughs> so that's what we're doing next week. And until then, I'm Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. So the Laser Blast Film Society, uh, if you live in Toronto and you are not attending these monthly screenings, what are you doing with your life? You're missing out on film history in the making. <laughs> That's right. And we did a special screening uh, this month, which, I mean, it's not that special because a lot of places around the world are doing it. It was special because the attendance was very high this <laughs> It month. was very high. We got a lot of normies out this month. <laughs> we did. <laughs> Why won't they come out with the other actually rare stuff that we play? Scream for help on 35mm on a print that had never even 
even been put on reels. <laughs> All right. Anyway, I'll tell you why I didn't make it out to that one because Goblin was performing in town the same night. Ugh, disgusting, Will. Yeah. You hadn't seen Goblin before? No, I hadn't. Oh, okay. I, I've seen them twice, so I guess uh, yeah. I'll give you a pass. But oh, and I didn't even remember that you weren't there. But thanks for reminding me. Now I have another thing to add to my Will grudge list. <laughs> when our falling out eventually happens. <laughs> That's right. And so we played Tammy and the T Rex, an infamous film. I remember as a kid seeing it on VHS all the time because I was like, ooh, T-Rex-related cinema. Never watched it until Vinegar Syndrome announced that um, they were doing, they had found the R-rated version of the film, which, why does that exist? (laughs) Tammy and the T-Rex, if you don't know it, it stars a young Denise Richards and Paul Walker. A very committed Denise Richards. Denise Richards and Paul Walker are high school students, and Paul Walker, God, I I, I don't know, he goes into a coma and- No, he's attacked by a lion, and then he goes into a coma that he wakes up from, but evil, um, what's his name? Mad scientist. Yes, played by- uh, weekend at Bernie's himself. Right. And Ellen Dubin from No Deposit. <laughs> oh, is that who it is? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's right. She's Art Hindle's wife, isn't she? Exactly, she's yeah. she's like, you fucking piece of shit in yeah. No Deposit. <laughs> I sold out my brother for <laughs> pussy. <laughs> <laughs> Such a good movie. Anyway. Uh, yeah, Halloween viewing um, the no, Sicilian no, Vampire. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, they're mad scientists, and they want to take Paul Walker's brain out of his head and put it into the brain of their giant animatronic dinosaur. <laughs> yes. And so this movie was made because supposedly the director was told that a guy had a giant theme park dinosaur for 10 days and that uh, could he shoot a movie around it? And so he did. Right. And a lot of the movie is there's this dinosaur walking around with Paul Walker's brain, but he doesn't talk. No. But he does go on a killing spree, killing <laughs> all of Paul Walker's enemies. Almost instantly. <laughs> and, like, And in the version that you screened, yeah. it's full of scenes of people's entrails getting torn out. Their heads being squished, just blood flying off. Really hideous, and he reconnects with his girlfriend, Denise Richards, and... They fuck. uh, Well, they don't fuck. Uh, Yeah, they do, because the guy's like, do you see how she's walking? That's how I know she's been with the dinosaur. I don't think so. I think so. I think the movie would go there. But how is that even possible? (laughs) Physically. I don't know. Well, the movie does end. I I am going to spoil the ending of Tammy and the Mm T-Rex. It ends with an amazing scene where Paul Walker's brain has been recovered from the dinosaur, but a a new body has not been found for it yet. But it's a brain in a jar with a lot of, like, electrical equipment tied to it. And there's, like, a camera that's been attached to it, and there's a vocal thing, so the brain talks. (laughs) And Denise Richards... You know, I guess she can't have sex with it, yes. but she does do a strip tease, and then sparks come out the of brain the brain. Comes. The brain comes, <laughs> yes, and that's the final scene. What do you think about? I was reading some reviews uh, a while back of people saying I don't enjoy this movie because people treat it as it's so bad it's good, but the director's obviously making a comedy, so that takes away from the idea of like, well, it's not that funny then because it's just jokes that don't work. I thought it was very funny. I thought it was very. Funny I went as into well. this movie assuming that it would be terrible. Yes. I thought just and Peter have sold out. This is for the normies, but I am going to make a courtesy appearance here. Okay. And then watching this movie, I realized that I was laughing and I was laughing at things the movie wanted me to laugh yes, at. Yes, but I think you also laugh harder than I think the movie like like that violence. I think the movie thinks it's funny, but I don't think it understands how violent it's making these scenes. <laughs> okay, but what about the scene where the dinosaur with Paul Walker's brain in it is trying to communicate so his funny. identity so, to Denise Richards and he plays charades. Charades with her. And we should point out that the dinosaur has like stretchy arms <laughs> that the a, movie a very, never comments on. He's gigantic and he's also kind of rubber 
Corey. Yeah, that's right. At one point, he like picks up a phone and tries to call her, but then realizes he can just growl. And I gotta say, whole new respect for Denise Richards because she plays these scenes so well. (laughs) Yes, just totally committed. Tears in her eyes, like not any sense of like, oh, this is a joke, and I'm like mugging for the camera. Mm -hmm. Like she does it right. So the scene where Paul Walker and the bully grab each other's balls—that's funny. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. great stuff. It's a movie that if you're looking at it and you're like, well, I don't know how I feel about this. Like, will it just be bad? No, it's funny. It's good. And I'm also intrigued by the director now because it's the same director as Mac and Me. Yes. And that was another reason why I was reluctant to watch this movie. Have you seen Mac and Me? Yeah, it's funny, but it's like (laughs) it's horrifying. I I enjoy Mac and Me, but I saw. This movie, Tammy and the T-Rex, I thought, okay, well, he he was just a hack. And yeah, when's the last shit. time I saw Mac and me, though? Probably three years ago. Oh, there's that amazing scene where they find the almost dead Max, and they're like, they look like withered, like, corpses that like, of, like, a country that are, like, starving, and they give them the elixir of life, which is, like, coke, and they're like... Right. And they drink it. Like, that is, like... So, no. Morally re- reprehensible. Mac and me is a hilarious movie, but it felt to me like just the product of a bunch of corporations got together. <laughs> Yes. and made this Frankenstein monster But then he film. pushed it in such a horrifying direction afterwards. Well, so now that I've seen Tammy yes. and the T-Rex, I realize, okay, there may be a mad genius at work here. <laughs> and then when I found out that he was involved in, in the same, Roar. Yeah, Roar, which is, if you folks haven't seen it, that's the movie starring Tippi Hedren and Melanie Griffith with the actual lions they own. And it was made by this community of insane Hollywood people who who have a lion-like preservation grounds where they just hang out with lions. And it is. If you haven't seen it and you watch it, it will be the scariest movie you see this Halloween season. Oh my God, Roar is horrifying because so many people actually got mauled on camera. And you watch it and you think like, oh, I know nobody really died watching it, so it's not going to be that frightening. But it is. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> There's some scenes where people are delivering dialogue and a lion just attacks them and they're like, oh, <laughs> in the yeah. middle of their line of dialogue. And so when I find out that he was involved in that community and that he almost directed Roar, yeah. and then I see all these scenes of people's like being dismembered by this T-Rex, uh, it's clear that, okay, he's working through stuff. <laughs> yeah. This may be a mad visionary. So are you going to check out a Mannequin 2 on the move as well? Yeah, I'll watch, uh, uh, what was that one, Bikini Beach with Billy Zane and Kelly Brook or <laughs> Wait, whatever. Direct that one? Yeah, yeah, oh, something like that. I do love Billy Zane. Mm-hmm. 